0: counterpunch radio my name is eric draitzer i want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 22 very interesting show this week um you know counterpunch is in the middle of this fun drive and i thought it would be a great time to really talk about the importance of independent media and um, you know if you've been following counterpunch radio if you're a regular subscriber to the magazine a follower of the website you already understand this but maybe you're new to counterpunch and so let me just make it very clear Counterpunch is something different. Counterpunch is an alternative, even to the pseudo-alternative media, the pseudo-left media. Uh, quite frankly, Counterpunch is the only place, or one of the only places, where you're going to get a real independent left perspective. Look at the Bernie Sanders issue. Look at the Syria issue. Look at the Libya war. All of these issues and many others, Counterpunch stood apart from the crowd. Counterpunch provided uh, an, an alternative and also a place for debate, because not everybody published on Counterpunch has the same views. This is, I think, very critical, especially in these times, and that's what we're going to be talking about here today. Uh, But before I turn to my guest, just as a reminder, the Counterpunch print magazine is a great way to support uh, the website, to support the Counterpunch project. Also, going on Counterpunch this week and next week, um, you can donate to help fund Counterpunch for the coming year. very important that you give uh, to support this project. Again, if you heard the episode with Jeff Sinclair last week, you know we we hammered that point home. We really tried to, um, well, not necessarily shame people, but you know encourage people to give to donate to Counterpunch, and I urge you to consider that again. Also, of course, the iTunes reviews for Counterpunch Radio really critical help drive uh, Counterpunch up those charts, bring it to more people. and Anyway, um, let's turn to the conversation this week where we are going to talk about some of these uh, really important media-related issues with uh, my good friend Don DeBar. He is the senior producer at CPR News uh, from Community Public Radio based in New York City. This is an independent broadcast service. You can find it at CPRMetro.org, really important source. Yours truly is a regular guest on there with my commentaries, conversation, other very interesting guests and of course daily news briefs don debar welcome to counterpunch radio thank you eric uh so don welcome i've been meaning to have you for a few weeks now you have me on your show all the time it's only it's only right that you come on counterpunch and it's only right that you come on counterpunch as we're talking about media and these media related issues you've been in in the media on the left independent media for for years now so let's just start right there Talk about this important issue. Why is independent media, especially on the left, so important in your mind?
1: Well, uh, you know, the obvious need for an informed uh, public um, and the obvious bias, the narrow band of the broad uh, sector of the media in the United States uh, make it self-evident. But the most important thing is, uh, particularly in terms of supporting counterpunches, you can get rid of that annoying box at the website.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, that's true. If you go
1: counterpunch.org, you'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, the uh, I, I think the importance of an independent left media, uh, the uh, evidence of its importance, can be seen in the fighting over Pacifica radio that's taken place over the course of decades. Uh, Pacifica... Um, five uh, stations owned by the Pacifica Foundation based in Berkeley, California, uh, KPFA in the Bay Area in California, KPFK in Los Angeles, um, KPFT in uh, Houston, Texas, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and here in New York, WBAI, five major market radio stations um, with a powerful signal, 50,000 watts here in New York, for example, and then uh, more than 100 affiliates reaching pretty much the the majority of the geography and the vast majority of the population in the United States, Um, over periods of time uh, from the uh, founding of the first station and the foundation uh, by Lou Hill uh, back during the McCarthy period um, to uh, the last few years. Uh, there have been uh, times when Pacifica stations were truly independent, um, and where voices of the left were uh, prominent and prominently featured. Uh, the Vietnam War is one such period where it was a voice for organizing against that war, the successful organizing against that war, I might add. Um, again, uh, during the nineteen uh, nineties, um, but before the nine eleven uh what do they call it before the uh world changing events of 911 yes uh, exactly <laughs> yeah. um one of the uh, many uh uh moves moves to seize control of it and purge voices of the left had taken place um it was in the aftermath of um uh, amy goodman at the time uh the 2000 election uh getting bill clinton on the phone and sort of naming names in places about the Clinton administration that weren't part of the popular discourse. Bill Clinton thought he was getting on the air to uh, do another get out to vote uh, bit for Al Gore and had to actually face um, uh, some s- serious questioning about his own uh, eight year term. Things that still echo today, the uh, three strikes you're out bill, the uh, other elements of mass incarceration like sentencing disparity and Uh, The first uh, bombing of Europe since World War II, uh, the war on Yugoslavia, uh, the uh, truth about uh, what happened in Rwanda, all these different things uh, were a surprise to Bill Clinton, and it took place on the airwaves of uh, Pacifica. Shortly after that, that station was taken over by Democratic Party operatives, uh, led by Mary Frances Barry, as a matter of fact, who uh, was the head of the foundation for a while. And when 9-11 took place... It blocks away from WPAI, they weren't even covering it. They were playing um, what the uh, then program director called conservatory-level jazz <laughs> uh, while uh, downtown Manhattan was falling apart and, uh, and uh, a new world order, quote-unquote, was being reconstructed uh, in the media here. Um, it took a, a, a while to get uh, the network back that did happen, however, uh, within a year or so after uh, 9/11, and uh, it was uh, unfortunate that the uh, war on Iraq uh, had already been, uh, you know, essentially uh, put in place. Uh, the organizing tools were available for the February 15th, uh, 2003 a massive rally that took place in the freezing cold New York City on uh, mm-hmm. you know in anticipation of that war and again um in uh, march and uh, the organizing against it over time uh continued until the beginning of the Obama administration and uh then a whole bunch of us were again purged out of uh Pacifica and those that remained you could see a shift uh, politically in the uh, orientation of the programming. And uh, unfortunately, I'd have to say even uh, at Democracy Now! Um, if you take a look at coverage for Libya, uh, that's an, a perfect example of of, of what's happened. Yes, uh, There was really no critical uh, coverage of what the U.S. was saying and doing there. Um, the assumption that was made uh, in the general narrative, in the you know at Fox and uh, CNN and MSNBC uh, carried through even to the producers at Pacifica that um, first of all that Muammar Gaddafi was the head of uh, some Libyan uh, government that uh, was a dictatorship that he was crazy that he was killing his own people and all the things that they had imputed to Saddam Hussein where they were closer to truth but not really. Either and uh, enabling uh, the United States to come to the rescue, and, and you know, the, at places like Democracy Now! and at WBAI and at KPFK, the discussion wasn't about uh, that narrative, uh, but rather whether or not the United States should get militarily involved. Right. The well, narrative was the same let's 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 expand on that because you have a back
0: i mean part of the reason just for listeners to understand part of the reason why you're focusing on uh pacifica and wbai is your background there your participation there for years and so you have a little bit of you know quote-unquote inside baseball knowledge of how all of this went down and how all of that worked, and you know a lot of us uh, for a lot of us, myself very much included, Libya was a turning point in our political development and in, in terms of our development with uh, media and our understanding of media and independent media. Because I remember very clearly watching Democracy Now!, watching the coverage of Libya and being absolutely uh, f- you know, flabbergasted by what I was witnessing because Democracy Now! essentially became more or less indistinguishable from every other media outlet. Um, When we had a... Genocide, ethnic cleansing happening of black Libyans. We had a delegation that I know uh, you have intimate knowledge of. A delegation goes to Libya, tries to report the truth, talks about the ethnic cleansing, the mass lynchings of black Libyans in the Fezzan province in the south, talking about uh, challenging the narrative of the killing of civilians by Gaddafi's uh, military forces, Gaddafi's security forces, challenging all this narrative. None of that made it into Democracy Now!, None of that made it onto Pacifica, and as you mentioned, over the course of a number of decades, these outlets had built up credibility on the left, and so when we were trying to mobilize opposition against a war on Libya, it was almost impossible to penetrate the narrative not because of CNN and Fox News and MSNBC, but because of pseudo-alternative media like Pacifica.
1: Yeah, because the alternative media that people had come to rely on had essentially been negated or occupied yep so um and 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 yeah (laughs) Libya was a uh, watershed I think for many people in the United States but also globally yep if you look at the behavior of Russia and China at the United Nations Security Council over Libya and then look at uh, their behavior over Syria like within months of Libya they saw yep reality you know you know with a clarity that was you know inescapable They said oh man we can 't give these guys anything the u the u s uh, pushed through resolutions nineteen seventy 1970 and nineteen seventy three yep um, one uh gave enabling like raison basically that um, there's this uh, threat to the uh, Libyan people from its government and you know these are findings basically of the security council and uh, consequently, um, we, we're going to sanction the government. There's an arms embargo placed there, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then in 1973, that this continuing threat uh, requires a no-fly zone because what had been alleged by the United States and some of its quote-unquote allies um, was that the uh, Libyan Air Force uh, had been strafing uh, pu- you know, protesters. Yeah, in Benghazi, exactly. And so... Um, as it turned out, not only was that not true, but the the evidence of it not being true had been available. Um, at the time of uh, Resolution 1973, the uh, Russian air, uh, you know, satellite surveillance uh, of Libya um, had specific imagery from the dates and locations of the specifically alleged incidents, showing no air traffic whatsoever. Um, none of that got reported here, and I and I spread it around quite. Uh, broadly to uh, a number of uh, media outlets and, and and including across Pacifica, and it didn't even get reported as a straw man. You know, like, well, they're saying the Russians say this, et cetera, But we have proof to the contrary. It didn't even go there. It was just completely omitted from the narrative. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, there were there were other bits of evidence showing that this was a, like a whole TV show, a media circus that was being presented. Uh, RT happened to be in Benghazi, uh, filming a, a "quote unquote" rally where there were some of the uh, troops that were fighting against uh, the Libyan people and and uh, the Libyan militia uh, being rehearsed for a live segment that was going to go on Al Jazeera by the Al Jazeera reporters, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know it was the entire thing was being staged. Um, none of that made the so-called progressive media here. And so for me, it was a real eye-opener. You know, it was one thing that uh, you have these, uh, you know, independent producers whose resources in the main are, you know, marginal. Not, not many have, uh, you know, millions of dollars to spend uh, to make sure that they can put people on the ground here, there, or whatever, and, and you know, make sure that they have sources uh, some do, however, but uh, but most of so you figure, OK, if they got that wrong, they were doing their best, but they just couldn't, you know, couldn't p- place somebody into the scene or their you know, the one or two people that they had turned out to not be reliable. They picked they cleaned it up quickly thereafter. And, uh, you know, I have to look at it critically, but I still trust them. You know, well, in, in this case, I had. Been in contact with uh, people on the ground that i some that I knew personally very well, like Cynthia McKinney
0: mm-hmm.
1: I had actually been to Libya with her um, in two thousand and nine so in two thousand and eleven in October of two thousand and nine in two thousand and eleven when she goes back with a group of people, some of whom were you know on the trip that I went to, that are people that I you know be, became friends with or had already uh, been acquainted with when we went to Libya, when they 're telling me what they 're seeing on the ground. And sending me video, and I'm looking at that against the reports that I'm hearing from the left media, so-called. Um, and there's huge <laughs> dissonances. Putting it, uh, my, there's a huge contradiction between what what I'm being shown and and what's being described to me by sources that I'm familiar with and what's being reported here. Yep. It made me realize that there's some agency involved in this, not just you know some deficiency. Yep. So you know that. Is it uh, that first of all it was a you know an awakening to me, um, although I had already faced some uh, measure of that. We had there was a purge of uh, much of the left from Pacifica in uh, early 2009 um, when uh, the station was the network was taken over uh, after they have these membership uh, elections and uh, these local station boards and a national board and it's. A really unwieldy, uh, kind of, uh, bizarre, uh, corporate structure for this, uh, you know, not California nonprofit corporation with an IRS 501c3 designation. And, um, there was litigation over the election outcome. And I think it was in the November, 2008 or October, 2008 election, uh, a, a different majority, uh, attained like a very small majority on the national board. The, um, Foundation's executive director, Pacific Foundation executive director, resigned. Uh, That made the, under California law, where the corporation is domiciled, the head of the um, the Pacific National Board, the chair, uh, the acting executive director. Now, that person was a uh, member of the California Station Board um, named Grace Aaron, who uh, rather than being a Marxist or a Maoist or whatever some people accuse um, various uh, folks at Pacifica of being, was actually a fundamentalist uh, Scientologist. Oh, jeez. Biggest quarrel with Scientology was that it had strayed from, and you can see this on YouTube, if you type in Grace Aaron and uh, uh, on YouTube, you'll see her lecturing on how uh, Scientology has strayed from the teachings of L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> and so you know, this this was the ideological basis of a purge yeah. that took place throughout Pacifica um, that is only being recovered from over the last year or two, um, partly due to uh, absolute failure uh, financially of the network after this group took over, claiming that they were going to save it financially. Um, and also... Um, a uh, a change in the uh, board membership leading to a slightly, uh, you know, to a majority, a slight majority on the other side. So um, Pacifica as a uh, media voice, of course, just because it's a radio network has also seen a decline in terms of market share with the rise of the internet. And um, so for those who Wanted to eliminate, you know, that what were they called? Full spectrum domination or full dominance mm-hmm. sp- mean, was the philosophy of the uh, the neocons that's, uh, you know, been still con- continued as a project. Um, whatever market share of the uh, the, the like the uh, aggregate uh, consciousness, I'd say, of the American populace that Pacifica occupied before. Uh, would have radically uh, shifted just uh, as a consequence of the uh, loss of influence of radio as a part of the full media spectrum. And then, in addition to that, much of it was stomped out affirmatively by uh, people who were apparently financed from the outside um, but had uh, wheedled their way into positions of control inside. And that's one of a number of independent media, by the way. Pacific is by no means the only... Uh, uh, left media that has suffered this fate. It is, however, one of the most prominent ones. Yeah, that's right. And uh,
0: man, you you brought up a number of things that I wanted to touch on, but let's let's take a look real quickly at this issue. Uh, and, And yes, of course, it's not just Pacifica Radio, but foundation funding... Being one of the primary sources of revenue that's funding this project, these foundations, which are invariably tied to the liberal establishment, if not directly to the Democratic Party, many of the same foundations, many of the same private donors are the same people who go to the, you know, $10,000, $20,000, $100,000 10000 $20,000, $100,000 a plate fundraisers for Democratic Party candidates, the purge that you're talking about uh, not coincidentally coinciding with the rise of Obama and the Obama uh, faction within the Democratic Party, um, all of these things I think illustrate a very dangerous, very insidious element within the left uh, with regard to media, namely the reliance on Wall Street Foundation money in order to support these left outlets. And when we say left, I'm not just talking about, you know, the quote-unquote far left like Pacifica, but the mainstream left, NPR, and uh, many of these other outlets as well. And so... In sort of, um, you know, in contradiction to that or set against that, you have a counterpunch, which if you follow counterpunch, if you look at the calls for fundraising and all of the rest of that, there is no major foundation funding. There is no deep pockets from Wall Street that are uh, driving what counterpunch is doing. And this is part of the reason why I'm always trying to drive these donations, because um, on the one hand, the independence is very important, but the independence can hurt and it hurts in the realm of financing
1: yeah uh, I mean, believe me um, this is and something I know, and yeah. I know
0: you know it uh, obviously <laughs> firsthand <laughs> it, with com- uh, community public radio
1: yeah we uh, you know our, our fundraising is uh, limited unfortunately um, to uh, essentially uh, keeping ourselves on the air and we're you know we're talking basically paying for a server to stream we have a uh, 24/7 uh, uh, internet radio station CPRMetro dot org um, that we uh, program twenty four seven, and so we have to pay uh, a uh, someone to run a server that streams that. You know, it's in the hundreds of dollars a month. It's not a, a huge nut and uh, equipment uh, replacement and uh, and you know uh, upgrading and such and software. You know, very small. Um, I have not been. Uh, although I produce a three-hour uh, daily news magazine on uh, CPR Metro and I do this half-hour uh, uh, news uh, uh, program that we run on uh, about 50 terrestrial radio stations right now. I think 52, I think it is. Um, you know, we produce that every day. Bernard White produces another three-hour uh, news magazine wake-up call. Uh, you know, despite all of that, Really, are, all we're doing is covering the bills, not drawing any, any pay for ourselves. And that is the nature of yep. this. There are, however, many that you can look at uh, GuideStar.com to uh, research uh, nonprofits, any 501c3 organization. They uh, have a copy of their most recent uh, tax returns. So you can see where, they're, certainly how much money they take in and how much goes out. And then uh, the, some of it, the, the larger uh, donors are identified and, and see that some of the uh, sources that you are accustomed to taking your information from are, in fact, you know, doing fabulously well- to- do. Now, I, I, you know I don't fault I have the highest respect, as a matter of fact, for, for some folks that have uh, produced and I'd say uh, in particular, Amy Goodman, I watched her um, at, from the audience of WBAI um, back in the late '90s and uh, early 2000s. Uh, schlepping around the country with a little portable radio crew um, going from public access TV station to public access TV station, building the, from the ground up uh, Democracy Now! In the middle of all of the uh, chaos at Pacifica that had been taking place, and she was one of the primary targets at the time of the uh, Democratic uh, Party people that had come in to take over Pacifica. Now, you know, I watched as she built that, and I thought it was both brilliant a huge amount of work, time, and effort that went into that and a very important voice going forward, particularly going back to the time of the beginning of the Iraq War, for example. Um, However, you know, first of all, you can't rely on one voice no matter who it is. You know, there are no saints here. We have uh, 6.5 billion people on this planet, a huge uh, disparity in power and wealth across the human population with, you know, perhaps uh, half a billion people uh, living literally from uh, hand to mouth or more, um, and uh, maybe a million people owning most of the rest of the planet, and the rest of us fighting over scraps. Um, individuals uh, shift alliances. Um, they uh, have uh, a more or you know smaller or larger uh, vector from total consciousness of every uh, thing that goes on in the world. Um, They have uh, the individual and uh, group interests. And so, and in any event, we have a responsibility to try to construct um, an uh, an image and uh, produce an assessment of reality uh, by not just hitting one point of information, but by taking as broad a a view as possible and looking at each thing as critically as possible. And so uh, even uh, looking at, uh you know at say an an outlet like pacifica uh in the most uh, generous uh, way um you would still be you know failing yourself if you didn't take and exam- examine each uh, piece of information that came from there you know try to source it and verify it in as many ways as you have the time energy and resources as possible to do uh, you know doing that Going back and, and, and trolling through uh, Pacifica's archives uh, or any of the program archives there, you're going to see uh, some successes and lots of failings. And certainly you'll see one chunk that's missing. This is one of the things that I try to do with CPR News, uh, particularly the 30-minute newscast. Uh, you know, they spend a lot of time demonizing uh, President Z in China, particularly President Putin in Russia um, for example, or or uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria, one thing you never hear ever in any of these outlets is even slices of, but, but particularly an extended replay of what they say in return. Yep. And, th- and this is one of the things that I try to do. For example, when um, the United States... Uh, accuses Russia of doing some nefarious deed at the UN Security Council, I'll take uh, the Russian uh, ambassador's uh, full comments, Vitaly Churkin's uh, full comments, and play it back as a part of my newscast. That'll be the feature story. So in the United States, you have Samantha Power uh, accusing Russia of shooting down a plane in not-so-subtle language. Um, and then uh, here, they'll say Russia denied it, you know, and they'll embellish everything that was said by or alleged by power, and then you get—if you're lucky—you get the, you know, a naked uh, statement of uh, denial. Here, I'll play back Vitaly Churkin saying, "Well, it wasn't possible for us to do that because we were out of town that day, or whatever the, you know, whatever <laughs> the uh, the reply is, or whatever their position is." So that people can look at the two things. And perhaps maybe be inspired to look at some more things because I'll source is this was Vitaly Churkin at the UN Security Council Monday. Are you suggesting, Don, are you suggesting that you're presenting information
0: in an unbiased way for people to draw conclusions on their own? Well, what I'm doing is
1: the biases, <laughs> the biases is based on my assessment of what's missing from the narrative in terms of
0: well, the bias, of facts. Or, or the bias will be inherent in any coverage in any media. That's a given. But what I mean to say is that trying to present it in as an objective and even handed way as possible, knowing that, look, I, I want to just I want to hit at this point here, because um, before we before we take a, a break here, You mentioned Libya. We talked about Libya. Uh, There are a lot of people, myself included, who, uh, and I know you as well, who have appeared on RT, for example. Well, the bias with RT is out in the open. Everybody knows what the editorial line for RT is. It is funded by the Russian government. It is designed to present a counter-narrative to the Western media. Everybody knows what it is. But it is demonized endlessly, just like press TV and even CCTV, maybe to a lesser extent, in some of the other non-Western media. But I want to return to this point of Libya. There was no outlet other than RT that covered Libya as well, as well, or as fairly as RT did. RT was presenting oppositional coverage, despite the fact that the Russian government did not veto in the UN Security Council. I remember uh, really gravitating towards RT during the Libya conflict, Because it seemed to me the only news outlet that was covering any of the stories that were being suppressed, including the ethnic cleansing of black Libyans, including uh, critical analysis of what was happening in Benghazi. And so for a lot of us, RT built up a certain level of credibility that was lost by Pacifica, lost by Al Jazeera, lost by a lot of these other outlets, which uh, during the Bush administration had built up a lot of credibility for themselves. What do you think about that?
1: You no, know, it's interesting also, um, at the same time that uh, I would say within a month in advance of, I think it was in January of 2011, uh, ahead of uh, the uh, February uh, so-called Arab Spring that uh, my uh, colleague uh, Sukhan Shandin in uh, London calls the Arab Sting. Yep, exactly. Uh, at Pacifica, the, uh, you know, they had suffered... Um, under uh, this group that took over in 2008, 2009, some serious financial setbacks, and there were layoffs and cutbacks in the news departments and producers and such, and a purge that was ideologically based, clearly, and racially based, uh, for sure. Uh, they did get rid of all of the independent black um, uh, voices at Pacifica, with a few notable exceptions. Um, But uh, the uh, management that were uh, self-motivated black men, uh, they were gone uh, almost immediately. Anyway, so to cover for some of the lost programming, they decided to start airing Al Jazeera uh, as uh, part of their uh, news presentation on a daily basis. That was in January of 2011. Now, Al Jazeera... Is owned and operated by um i don't know if it's been spun off in terms of you know shares and you know publicly traded but it's owned and operated by the emir of qatar yep qatar being a uh, medieval uh state uh, akin to saudi arabia uh one of the least democratic in the world and this is its media outlet and qatar of course was one of the players on the ground in libya with uh Reports, eyewitness reports from uh, folks like uh, Lizzie Fallon and uh, Madi Nazmaria and others, uh, sources that I know uh, personally, um, telling us that the uh, when there was finally a an an entry of uh, forces into Tripoli after it had been pounded for seven months by U.S. aerial bombardment, that the group of maniacs that came in had uniformed Qatari commanders. Mm-hmm. So Qatar was not an objective uh you know player here. Qatar was was one of the uh primary uh participants. And so Pacifica's news coverage was primarily based uh from uh, you know from Qatar. Yep. Uh, so so that that part was interesting, but watching it was RT and uh Press TV Um, Press TV had, you know, Iran had, the the official government line of Iran was that this was an indigenous revolution in uh, Libya at the time. Uh, You had, you know, the uh, political dissonance among um, the Arab states where you had uh, uh, Shia uh, religious uh, state, um, Sunni religious states, and um, the multi-ethnic secular states, that being Libya, Syria. And Iraq, um, up until two thousand three, two thousand four. Uh, so I think that that influenced it. But to its credit, Press TV presented all sides. I, they had me on a lot, where I would be sitting, you know, in, in a studio in New York, you know, walking into the camera and saying, "Hey, you know, you folks in Tehran, you need to wake up because guess yep. what? They have they have a tour laid out, okay, and Tehran's on the tour list. Up <laughs> there yep. next. Yeah, yep. You know, yep. To go to Syria." And, and, and you know, they'd continue to have me back and nobody ever tried to coach me or tell me what to say or whatever. I would provide my own analysis and they had a range of voices that should be what you see here in the United States given the, you know, the actual diversity here of, of both opinion on the ground um, and, and uh, you know, backgrounds and, uh, and, and such here. And, and in addition to that, at RT, likewise, there were uh, people that, would advocate uh, for the U.S. position that, you know, were given a microphone and a camera, and there were people that uh, would oppose it and did oppose it. And in addition to that, this is what I liked about RT, they had their own investigative journalists who were going out on the ground and bringing in their own firsthand information that contradicted the narrative here and occasionally the narrative coming out of RT as well with, Here's some documented facts to throw into the mix. I liked that, watching that especially. Yeah, and that
0: was one of the things that struck me with RT especially, was that RT, in... in- in various ways, went against uh, the Russian government's line because the Russian government's line was not to oppose NATO's intervention. Um, while they may have rhetorically done so, when the moment in the UN Security Council came, they did not oppose it. They voted in favor of Resolution 1973, which uh, ostensibly established a no-fly zone, although it was taken as a de facto authorization for war. Um, so, and in many ways, RT was in contradiction to that. Now, it should be said, of course, that... Um, Ultimately, the Russian government, I think, realized the gravity of the mistake they made. And um, obviously, as you noted earlier in the conversation, seemed to have rectified that with uh, along with China in, in the context of Syria. Um, and this is really, I think, the final point that I want to hit here is the oppositional nature of media, because in talking about RT and Press TV and, you know, Al Jazeera and all of these news outlets, it's not to, you know, pump up one to the, to denigrate another. And it's not to just put counterpunch in opposition to all of that. It is to demonstrate the importance of media and the importance of these narratives and, and understanding how they are shaped and the relationship between between the shaping of these narratives and the events on the ground. Because if you think about it, I mean, we can all sort of, you know, uh, long for the, the glory days of anti-war organizing during the Bush administration, right? When a lot of our, uh, you know, left media was on the same page, when Al Jazeera and Pacifica and all of these other outlets could be relied on to present the information that needed to be presented in order to challenge the neocons, to challenge Bush and Cheney and the warmongers and all of the rest of them and since obama came to power and since the arab spring especially you've seen a radical shift in the nature of media and in the nature of oppositional media such that our sources when i say our i mean left anti-imperialist sources have dwindled to such a degree that it is uh in many ways it feels like a very barren landscape
1: you know i look at yeah I, i agree with you um however there are there are, you know there are kernels of hope um and uh and there is I, i'm gonna uh you know out myself yet again as a marxist there is the uh, dialectical uh nature of things um where uh in that kind of a condition the uh you know the opposite uh is given birth to uh the kernels of its uh opposition uh arise from that um First of all, and, and, and just to illustrate, in making a presentation from from my point of view uh, to try to repair uh, the narrative that people in the United States are exposed to, and I'll say from the outset uh, that although I you know I do a lot of work international work where the audience like today I'm going to be on uh, uh, Channel One in Russia, and uh, everything I said is going to be translated into Russian, and so people will hear me say like. Um, uh, today, I am, and then you'll hear, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. The, uh,
1: the, to me, the primary task um, that I am trying to take on, um, and I think that that needs to be done with uh, folks like you and I, uh, is to try to bring some awareness of uh, to the people in the United States of exactly what they don't know. That is really important to their understanding the world because I think we need to involve the people of this country in changing the course of the uh, policy of this country very soon, or, or our entire species is headed towards a catastrophe. That's like kind of what drives uh, me as a motivation. And so, what I do is look at try to look at as much as possible for the small collective of people that we have working here. Um, the totality of what is being presented uh, in the U.S. media. And that means, uh, you know, from Fox through CNN to MSNBC all the way out to uh, Democracy Now!, say, and Pacifica. And look at, for example, if uh, Friday you have the uh, U.N. Security Council talking about what's happening in Palestine. Um, You know, okay, so I sit and watch the U.N. Security Council meeting and I, I look, I source the, uh, the material that uh, the presentations were based on. Then I'll look at the coverage to the extent there is any, uh, say, from Fox out to uh, Pacifica, figure out what's missing. And that's what I'll present and try to you know, push out as far as possible uh, into people's faces. So it gets considered by some segment, particularly among the left, um, uh, you know, uh, as a part of the, uh, you know, part of the process of what's going on. So, in the process of doing that, of course, um, you know, you start to identify what uh, what the leanings of each of these uh, sources are to, to the point where you can almost predict what they're going to say as each event unfolds. Exactly. And, yep. And so, you know, in the process of doing that, I start to assemble a uh, you know, what's the word they use in, in media a stable quote unquote of um, voices uh, that can address a variety of issues that, uh, you know, that are germane to this. And um, and we've been uh, trying to do that and, and, and bring some of those voices to the fore. And it's interesting because some of the folks are people that I got to know through RT, for example. Others are people I got to know through Pacifica that are still uh, presented on Pacifica. And uh, I would say like, uh, for example, um, uh, uh, Dr. Richard Wolf, the mm-hmm. economist. Yep. Um, and, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, uh, the historian, um, and, and, and others, you know, a, a number of others. And, uh, and, and, and so, you know, the process of doing that, it, it's very, uh, slow. Um, you know, our audience, uh, I'm gonna, if I were to guess, I would say it numbers in, uh, b- between the thousands and the low tens of thousands, um, in terms of, you know, it's hard to keep a head count. I think we, we run, uh, a hundred hits at our news website every day, for example, but about fifty three I think of those fifty five are terrestrial radio stations and internet radio stations, and they have their own audiences
2: mm-hmm.
1: whatever the reach of that is um, from Facebook, I can see that the you know the reach there is uh, is into the uh, low thousands. I think I have forty five hundred uh, Facebook friends for example who get posted when the news goes up every day and and so, so it's a very slow and tedious process and we spend very little time fundraising sort of out of necessity a or you know when you're trying to organize uh, a, a counter narrative and a uh, you know a, a counter political uh uh center um of course it's gonna be among the people that need that and and those folks don't have a lot of money in this country as a, you know, just as a consequence of how things are. Um and so, you know, when you say you need help, uh you're grateful if they can throw twenty dollars, twenty five dollars, uh, god help you if you can get a recurring uh monthly of uh ten, twenty dollars from them, it's a big help. Uh and you don't get the uh ten thousand or a hundred thousand dollar checks from foundations, and I wouldn't take them, frankly. Anyway,
0: yeah, and you know, I just want to conclude with kind of building off of that point as well. Um, I've mentioned a number of times to people that um, if you think about, you know, what you might spend, say, for a monthly membership to the New, you know, subscription to the New York Times what you might spend for those daily cups of coffee at Starbucks, what you might spend for, you know, your cable bill or whatever else. If you can, if you were to add up the dollar amounts that you spend on these things and instead divvy those up among, say, your 10 favorite alternative, you know, news outlets and did a recurring monthly subscription to each one of those or recurring monthly donation to each one of those All of these media outlets would be doing a lot better, could be doing a lot more work, could be actually providing uh, uh, money to people to actually generate more content, could be doing a lot more things. And so we wouldn't necessarily be as bare bones as we are. Uh, You know, I know that firsthand, having done multiple podcasts, running my own website, working with Counterpunch, working with other uh, alternative news outlets. You know that, of course, Um, this is something that is really, I think, think an ongoing conversation how we build up an independent base of support financial support and also just public support getting the word out spreading uh our favorite outlets to all of our circles of friends and contacts this is an absolutely critical task i think for the left and it's one of those things that look i i think that the establishment the foundations and all of the rest of them they don't want to see that all the more reason for us to
1: do it yeah, I mean, you have to look at it as a community project, really. With the exactly. The, you know, the uh, those who want to build an alternative political system here. Um, I, I, just to to, to uh, punctuate that, um, both the uh, recurring uh, payments, as modest as as, it, as they might be um, uh, by your standards, if 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 not objective standards, um, as important. And, and and perhaps more important, but certainly as important as that, uh, is to help grow the audience exactly. by sharing the content. Yep. You know, with a Facebook account, going out and, and, and maybe adding Facebook friends or setting up a separate Facebook account that isn't for your family and your cats and all of that, but to do some political organizing. and building a, a, a base of friends there and then sharing every uh, podcast that you get from uh, from uh, Counterpunch Radio, uh, every podcast that you get uh, from CPR News, every podcast that you get from whatever sources that you have, sharing it and, and bringing it to a larger and, and larger audience because this is something that can be done free. It just yep. takes a little time. Even if you spent 15 minutes every day, Sharing, say, three or four links of uh, your news sources and developing maybe a couple thousand uh, Facebook friends for that account and sharing it there, that can explode to a mass audience very quickly.
0: And also, I mean, you know, there are a lot of people who shy away from social media as I did for a long time. I mean, I'm, I'm a younger person and I didn't want to get on Facebook until actually relatively recently for a lot of reasons. Um, but I mean, even if that means an email list to your 100, you know, closest uh, contacts via email saying, hey, you should check out, uh, you know, Counterpunch Radio this week. This is a great news segment. or This is a great interview or CPR News. You know, this was excellent. Don had this guy on and they were we're talking about x y and z you know that sort of thing is actually incredibly valuable it helps to grow the audience and and you never know i mean the people who receive it then share it to their contacts and i mean that's how these things grow that's how they build because just as as we're getting at you know there is no George Soros money that's going to be rolling into truly independent oppositional media. It's just it doesn't work that way. And so it is up to us to fill that void in supporting
1: these type of news outlets. That's right. And and some other things that you can do, uh, if you write a letter to the editor about, say, the war on Syria or whatever, you know, you can say, and uh, as was reported in Counterpunch.org, as was reported, at org, as was reported so and so and then make a statement of fact from the report people see that and and finally one other thing that's really valuable uh for outlets like org that has a, you know that have a continuous uh stream going out like a, an internet radio station your local public access tv station um for the channels where they show you the meeting schedules at the, with the town board and all of that stuff, they play a radio station behind it. Talk to them, get them to carry CPRMetro.org. dot org, get them to carry broadcasts from uh, counterpunch dot org. Get you know, try to get your media out in front of as many people as possible, and 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 that's a very important place where you can do that. Absolutely. Well, Don, I'm happy
0: to be one of the horses in your stable. Thank you so much for that and having me regularly on CPR um, on Sundays and sometimes giving my commentary. Um, Listeners, I cannot recommend... uh, more highly CPR news that's community public radio you need to be following it you should uh, become a regular listener become a supporter at cprmetro.org senior producer don debar thanks so much for coming on counterpunch radio
1: eric thank you very much and again support counterpunch and get rid of that annoying box go to counterpunch.org you'll know what i'm talking about and you'll know how to make a contribution absolutely thanks don talk to you
0: soon Happy to introduce Laura Carlson to the program this week. Uh, Laura is the director of the Americas program at the Center for International Policy. Um, you can follow them on Twitter at cip americas and also the website cipamericas.org um, Laura is going to educate us on a very very important issue a um, you know a a very difficult um, tragic situation in Mexico that is almost completely missed in the mainstream narrative so without further ado Laura Carlson welcome to Counterpunch Radio Thanks Eric it's a pleasure to be on the show Thank you for coming on and thank you for uh, taking up this really important issue. And I've danced around it. I haven't named it. Um, We're talking about the, I guess a lot of people probably know about it, what happened in Iguala about a year ago, Iguala, Mexico, the um, Ayotzinapa incident, as it's uh, come to be known popularly. Um, I want to just, you know, I mentioned that, but I, I should be clear, there are probably a lot of people who still don't know what exactly we're talking about. So let's begin there. Can you give us a little bit of background for people? What happened a year ago? What were the circumstances of this
2: case? What do we know about it today? Sure. So on September 26th, a group of students from the Rural Teaching College of Ayotzinapa set off from their school to commandeer buses. Now, this uh, sounds kind of drastic, but it's actually a very common tactic of these schools because they're severely underfunded. These schools have a long history. They are schools that were developed after the Mexican Revolution with revolutionary ideals, and the idea was that they would provide um, they would provide an opportunity. For the children, men and women, in this case, the school is an all-male school, and there's others that are all women, to receive an education and become teachers and go back to their own communities as teachers in their communities. So the students from these schools come from very poor, uh, campesino, indigenous communities, most of them from the same region as the school, in this case, in the state of Guerrero. And the government has been hostile Toward these schools for quite some years, because essentially their philosophy goes exactly against the neoliberal reforms that are taking place. Mm-hmm. You know, there are schools that really concentrate on um, a more equal distribution of wealth, on the value of work, on a fair shake for indigenous and small farmer communities. And also on the value of collective action. So the students set off to to get these buses because they weren't provided transportation within their school. And they were planning to take a whole group of students to participate in a big demonstration that's held every year here in Mexico City that's protest against the October 2nd, 1968 massacre of students in Tlatelolco. And they went first to one city, the capital of the state, and they were blocked from entering in and so they went on to Iguala and basically, what they do is they stop a bus, they talk to the bus driver, they say, "We want to use this bus, they make an arrangement with the bus driver um and they and they end up taking that bus for their purposes as long as they need it, and then they give it back when they're through with it um It's not legal, but it's pretty common um So they began to try to find buses, and they ended up in Iguala because they couldn't go to Chilpancingo. And when they got into Iguala and one of the buses went into the bus station, the students were locked up instead of being able to go with the buses. They'd been told they would, so they called other students. And then as the buses, by this time there was five of them, began to try to leave Iguala, Uh, is when at about nine o'clock at night they were ambushed by local police and the police began firing on the students there were several different incidents in this there were several different places in the same general area near the downtown iguala where the buses were of students were attacked um so they began firing on them and then and then uh the students were unarmed, completely unarmed. They began saying, stop firing, we're just students. Um, and uh, they, they fled, and they called a press conference. There was a press conference, and during the press conference at midnight, there was another attack on the students, this time by commandos. So in all this, the dust cleared from all this, what we had was six people dead, three of them students and three of them apparently from a bus that was mistakenly identified as students from Ayotzinapa and that was also attacked on the highway. One student in a coma who continues to be in a coma a year later And 43 students that have been rounded up and taken away by the local police and were never heard of since. Those are the 43 disappeared, and their number has become a symbol of injustice here in Mexico. So those are essentially the facts that we know regarding the case. And then the investigations over this past year, particularly as to why this happened, have have not resolved the questions, and in fact, in some ways, have created more questions.
0: Yeah, exactly. I want to focus on that a little bit, and I, I should have mentioned it in the opening here. You had a great piece, uh, which we published on Counterpunch. It was entitled, On Government Lies, Human Bonfires, and the Search for Truth in Mexico, a really great article that dives into a lot of these unanswered questions. And so I want to I want to touch on that a little bit, and I, I'm not asking you necessarily to get into the minutiae of the case, uh, all of the specifics. But there's this interesting question about these inconsistencies and some of the statements that were made by pretty high ranking officials in the Mexican government. And it doesn't really seem to jive with what we're actually seeing in terms of the evidence that's come out. A lot of open questions, a lot of uh, mishandling and or deliberate uh, hiding of evidence. So talk a little bit about these inconsistencies and this larger question of the integrity of the investigation.
2: Exactly. And that's the biggest thing we're facing right now a year later, because an experts uh, committee was put together by the Organization of American States, the Human Rights Commission, to come and investigate. And of course, this had a lot to do that with from the very beginning, especially the parents of the missing students just did not believe the government version and they were also seeing that the investigation itself was not trustworthy there was a lot of omissions there was a lot of mishandling of it and so they really pressured to have some independent commissions back up this investigation and and uh, to have some to have some information Uh, parallel to what the government was producing. So this commission took six months, and they came out. It was a very high-level commission, some really important people on it with a lot of experience in this kind of thing. And they just came out with their report about two and a half weeks ago. And the biggest thing, and this is why it says human bonfires in the title, is that the government version was that the local police had been corrupted by by a local drug cartel. And they went and they captured the students. They handed the students over to the drug cartel. The drug cartel took them, executed them, and then incinerated their bodies in the town dump. Well, the committee, the parents never believed this. And the committee went to the dump and they did extensive analysis. And what they found was that that was absolutely impossible. It turns out that to completely incinerate forty three bodies requires an enormous conflagration, yeah, and there was no evidence that could support that a fire of that size had ever taken place there. Um, they, the government claimed to find remains in plastic bags in a nearby river, which was also weird I mean then you 'd have to wait like three days for the the ashes to cool enough off enough to put in plastic bags and throw in the river. Mm-hmm. And it's not a typical you know, method of operation of organized crime groups. And they identified one, they had one DNA match uh, to one student there, but the parents were still like, we don't know where these remains really came from because they were found in a river. You know, we've got one DNA match, but they were still extremely skeptical. So this completely destroyed the whole hypothesis that the government had put forward Calling it the historic truth. I mean, they were not going to allow for any doubt about their version, which turned out to be false Um, and left everything open again. And also with this enormous question of why did the government lie to us?
0: And I want to get to that question here in a second because it ties into a larger political context that we need to really unpack a little bit. But before we get to that, I just want to point out something that I find really interesting in, in looking at this case um you see that it, it seems like high-ranking government officials. Now, I don't know exactly how high, if it goes directly to the president's office or people below him or whatever, but it does seem that federal uh, officials, people of very high positions in the Mexican government, are desperately trying to dump this entire case into the lap of corrupt local officials, to make this into a local issue, to, not, I mean, pardon the pun, but to disappear the issue. Issue into the black hole of the drug cartels, where, you know, once you chalk it up to the drug cartels into local corruption and collusion between those two, well, then of course everybody, you know, all questions can be answered because it's just another uh, horrendous atrocity committed by the cartels. Doesn't it seem a little too convenient to dump it all onto these local officials?
2: That's right, and that was always one of the reasons for the skepticism from the beginning. Because what they were trying to say is what they always say, pretty much, that uh, we are the good guys in this drug war. We're fighting the bad guys, which are the drug cartels. And unfortunately, we have a few bad apples in our ranks, and Mm -hmm. especially at the lower levels of government, of course. So when they came out with this version, they were so eager that people just accepted as. As the historic truth, you know, that they, because it would enable them to wash their hands of the whole case at the federal and state levels. And uh, they had already rounded up a lot of the municipal police. They had already arrested the mayor and his wife, who were supposedly the people who gave the orders to stop these students. And they really hoped that they could just sweep everything under the rug from there. So what this does is really open it up. And it's not only that their version was false, which means that we don't know what really happened yet. But it's also there are a lot of parts within this 560-page report that's, of course, very thorough that uh, reveal that the federal police and the Mexican army were aware of what was happening at all times and did nothing to stop the bloodshed. They were aware of the students' movements from the time they left their school, hours before the ambushes, and they were present at the scene of several of the crimes during the shootings from uh, many of the testimonies.
0: You know, so in, in other words, we're talking about, um, more or less a government sanctioned massacre. Um, whether you want to lay the the blame directly at the feet of these, uh, of these army, uh, you know, of the soldiers and of their commanding officers or of the police or a combination thereof, essentially you have a collusion between these forces for the purposes of repression. And in this case, that repression was a massacre.
2: Yes. And they also said that, uh, it was very highly coordinated. We're talking about you know over a space of three four hours, attacks on six different buses um, of students, five Ayotzinapa students, and one bus that they thought were Ayotzinapa students. So so again, you know, the big question is is why and who knew what when.
0: Yeah, well, and that's really where I want to go with this conversation because this is very much a human story, of course. I mean, the, the, the families of these, of the victims, um, their extended families, their friends, the, the next cadre, the next generation of teachers who are coming up who maybe will question whether they should be as active as their predecessors for fear of possible repression. All of this, this human side of the story is really important, but I do think that we have to place it within a broader political context in order to really understand this issue. So that's where I want to go. Tell us a little bit about what the government is doing in collaboration with certain corporate interests in the context of privatization, collaboration with transnational corporations, trying to promote investment, and how this case fits into that. In other words, how is a new crop of teachers working with the rural poor with with the working class, with the campesinos, why do they see them as such a threat to this neoliberal privatization project?
2: Well, there's probably two main reasons, and they both have to do with this whole package of neoliberal reforms that President Enrique Peña Nieto has pushed through during his administration. These are the reforms that complete the wish list of transnational corporations ever since Mexico began adopting the neoliberal economic model. And that wish list, first and foremost on it, was the privatization of the national oil sector, the national oil company Pemex. Um, That had been something that corporations, ever since NAFTA, there was every document that came out in terms of what we want Mexico to do, you know, from the point of view of the U.S. government and the and the corporations, uh, privatization of Pemex was on the top of that list. But it had been politically impossible for previous administrations because it was a symbol of national pride. It was something that people wouldn't accept. So Peña Nieto came into office and he was able to first of all, get a broad base of agreement among the corrupt leaders of all the political parties, including the center-left party, the PRD. And on the basis of that agreement, began to work with Congress um, with all kinds of, you know, incentives provided and threats, I'm sure, as well, in the behind-the-scenes negotiations to be sure that he could get this through Congress. And in the end, he was able to. The other reform that has a lot to do with the situation of the students and the attacks on them was a reform in education, mm-hmm. essentially in, was with rural schools in unbelievable conditions. I mean, there's rural schools in Mexico, and a lot of them, that have no electricity, that have no running water, that don't even have walls to their schools. So with this situation, the uh, education reform, instead of guaranteeing a basic level of, of education and of educational installations, you know, for students, no matter how poor and how remote their community is, um, was toward this privatization model and the kind of no-child-left-behind standardization of testing. This was going to push out a lot of those teachers who were trained in uh, more of the social values of the revolution. It was going to eliminate their labor union organizing and any capacity they had for collective bargaining – uh, and one of the things that it did directly was it go- was going to gradually eliminate the guarantee that students at these underprivileged schools like the rural teaching colleges would be guaranteed a job in their communities when they finished school and that their schools, in fact, would be guaranteed continued survival. So it was something very dear to the heart of the students. They'd been probably among the most active groups within within mexican society throughout the country to protest against that and they'd also been very active in protesting against the oil reforms the other thing is that when they came out um against the oil reforms and others you know they are going back into communities rural communities that are already beginning to organize against what's happening with this massive sell off of Mexico's natural resources to transnational corporations. These are communities that, by these changes in law, will um, be forced or could be forced to change from this millennial smart, small farmers model to having to sell or lease their lands to oil and especially mining developers. Mm-hmm. The concessions are already in mining. The concessions are already widespread and there's already local conflicts against it, not only because their land is being converted to mining uh, without real consultation or without them having a say in it, but also because even if it's not their land, if it's contiguous, the amount of water. That mining takes out makes it impossible for them to continue to farm and to continue their way of life. So there's already conflicts arising throughout the country. And now that the same thing has been legalized to do with uh, oil and gas extraction and including fracking, they're considering that there could be just this major offensive. Against the lands of small communities. They need to attract investors, and last thing they want is for these small communities to be rising up against the incursions on their lands and territories. And the teachers have always been critical, you know, in organizing many of those local, um, uprisings. So another reason that they would have to eliminate these schools and to, uh, assure that those values that that are opposed to the neoliberal model don't become extended generation through generation is uh, getting rid of the schools for that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, what's, I think, interesting for people, especially in the United States, is that there is – an extended version of the privatization of education that we see here in the U.S. happening all over the world and what we're talking about here in Mexico is merely the more brutal kind of repression that can take place in Mexico, but it's within the context of similar processes, privatizing public education, public institutions, busting of labor unions through intimidation, through school closures and many other tactics, the displacement of local communities especially communities of color or in the case in in, in Mexico and and, uh, elsewhere in Latin America indigenous communities Um, you see a similar scenario playing out right now under the right wing uh, government in Honduras which is uh, desperately uh, attacking some of the indigenous communities who live on prime real estate that uh, many of these hotel corporations and real estate speculators want to get their hands on so this is not uh, just a, a a, you know, a, a massacre of 46 people. This is a symbol of a very, very troubling, very dangerous trend all throughout Latin America and really all throughout the Western Hemisphere, wherein corporations with their collaborationist government partners are essentially uh, carrying out repression in order to clear the way for their investments and their profits
2: yeah that's right and so then and and it's a it's a model that creates such extreme inequality that there's always going to be resistance against it and so now, in order to kind of nip that resistance in the bud, these kinds of educational reforms are important because they're talking really about a model of education for inequality yes, and what the students are defending is an is a model of education for equality.
0: Yeah, that's that's precisely right, um, and it takes many forms in the United States. Some of that uh, comes in the form of resegregation of schools, where resources are diverted to uh, more affluent communities, and the poorer communities, especially in the urban settings, are basically depleted of their resources. It takes the form, just as you mentioned, in Mexico and in other places as well, and I think that you're getting at a very important point there, Laura, just a minute ago on this issue of teachers and the mobilization of communities. This is one of the very, I I, I think, under... What's the word I'm looking for? Not not nearly discussed enough. The simple fact that teachers play a pivotal role in communities, in community building, in organizing resistance within communities. Teachers are uh, generally speaking, although they're within the working class, they're of higher education levels typically than many other working class people. Um, And so for those reasons, teachers are kind of often on the front lines of these sorts of fights. And it makes sense that they would want to attend these teachers,
2: Right. And it's something that the elite has always known. Otherwise, they wouldn't make such a priority um, um, on these educational neoliberal educational reforms. But those kinds of education reforms are always a part of the imposition of the neoliberal model. So it's time that we understood that role as well and began to support those teachers more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And this also ties into this larger question about uh, economics here, because essentially you mentioned it earlier, free trade and so-called NAFTA and uh, what this has done to the economic model in a place like Mexico. You mentioned the inability to privatize the oil sector in Mexico to this point. Well, they were able to privatize the telecom sector and it created a huge amount of wealth for, Carlos. Slim And for a small number of people, while actual service went down, the infrastructure was degraded and depleted. And that is in many ways, I think, a template for what Mexico and Mexican citizens can expect in a number of other sectors.
2: Yeah, they're, they've been with the privatization of oil. They've been promising that prices of gas would go down, and completely the opposite has happened.
0: They always and promise
2: that. that. <laughs> but the destruction, the environmental destruction that that implies, when we look at the long-term effects of these, you know, take everything you can now and then get out of there kind of development strategies, um, they're dire. And particularly in the context of climate change when we shouldn't even be developing fossil fuels anymore anyway.
0: Well, and on top of that, I mean, it gets into the question about hydraulic fracturing or fracking and the impact it'll have on groundwater, the impact it'll have on agricultural output, the impact on the quality of the food that's produced on a number of other environmental issues. And that's not even touching on, as you mentioned, climate change and, and related issues. So in many ways, this is the full neoliberal package that's being delivered to Mexico. And in many ways, the uh, the the Ayotzinapa um, um, disappeared. The 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 massacre is, I think, symbolic of this larger trend.
2: Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I mean, you definitely see this clash of paradigms happening there, and we don't know exactly who did the assassinating and disappearing. Um, you know, who who pulled the trigger in that sense but we do know that it happened in this overall context of repression that have very clear political roots.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. I want to close our conversation here because I mean, we could, we could go into a number of other directions, but I think it's really important to touch on some of the solidarity work and some of the other things that are happening that, that need to continue happening. Um, we've just marked the one year anniversary of this tragic event um, Tell us a little bit about how it was marked in Mexico and what's happening in terms of organizing, what's happening, where do we stand in terms of a possible new investigation, what are the latest developments?
2: There has to be a new investigation. Fortunately, the Committee of Experts was granted an additional six-month mandate, so they're going to be looking in especially the role of the Army and a number of the areas in which there were contradictions and um, a lack of evidence before, so the investigation will continue. Meanwhile, the disappearance of the 43 of Ayotzinapa uh, was a real impetus for the organization of families that disappeared all over the country. They've already been organizing for many years because, unfortunately, this is not a new phenomenon. There's some 25,000 Disappeared people recognized by the government and many of the families in their organizations believe the m- number could be much higher. They are doing a lot of uh, of search and investigation on their own, including in the Iguala area and finding clandestine graves and attempting to identify the bodies there and put a rest to families who have spent, in many cases, years not knowing if their loved one was alive or dead. So we're seeing a lot of grassroots uh, organization in that sense, and those organizations are becoming more and more radicalized as they come up against a government that at best is indifferent and then at worst, and unfortunately quite commonly, is involved in the crimes itself, in complicity or, or direct participation. Um, In terms of the Ayotzinapa movement, there was a huge march here Saturday. It was the proof that a year later, uh, the government's strategy of trying to exhaust the movement of hoping that the issue would just go away has completely failed. There were tens of thousands of people in the streets in Mexico City and there were solidarity events in many uh, parts of the world as well. There was an International Tribunal of Conscience in New York City that indicted President Enrique Peña Nieto and his government for multiple violations of human rights in the country, including in the case of Ayotzinapa. So the response globally to this tragedy has been widespread and much of that has to do with the tireless efforts of the families themselves who in the midst of you know probably the most painful thing that can happen to you especially as a parent they have gone out and and organized in Mexico and beyond in international caravans to make sure that the issue doesn't go away and that they find their sons and of course they're calling for the students to be returned to be found alive to be searched for alive um and are encouraging demanding of the government that there's more profound investigation so that's where we are here i think that you can safely say at this point that the case of Ayotzinapa changed mexican history forever it really in a country where we'd come become a little inured to violence. It, it was like pick, you pick up the newspaper every day and somebody has been murdered in the drug war somewhere. This all began with the drug war at the end of 2006 when the violence really went up, and we can talk in, on another occasion about why that is. But um, since then, people have become accustomed to seeing these kinds of stories. But then when 43 students were disappeared... And three assassinated by police, it just really shook people up to say this, this cannot happen. This cannot continue to happen. This government cannot continue to get away with um, allowing this to happen
0: absolutely this is this is an issue that um, i 've seen a little bit of a little bit of discussion of it within uh, certain uh, let 's call them more radical quarters of the teachers' union uh, movement of uh, certain other people that I know in the education world who do understand the importance of uh, standing in solidarity with their uh, with their missing with their disappeared uh, colleagues, but also uh, just in terms of the left you know the, the more let's say, the more social justice-oriented left. Um, there is some conversation on this issue, but um, not nearly enough, in my opinion. And I yeah. think that uh, the uh, Ayotzinapa massacre, the disappeared, is, um, as I mentioned already, it's a symbol for a larger resistance movement that is really necessary in pushing back against all of these phenomena. So, um, again, I want to thank you for coming well, on. I, I yeah, go ahead. Sh-
2: one very important thing that there's a US role in this because of the support for the war on drugs. So, another thing that people can look for is their petitions out there to end the Merida initiative and yes, the america initiative is 3 billion dollars that the united states government has given to the mexican government including to these very same security forces that are involved in these kinds of extrajudicial executions human rights violations and assassinations to fight this disastrous drug war so people should really look for those petitions and begin and pressure representatives in Congress and organized on the grassroots level to cut off all security aid to Mexico because it's being turned against the people.
0: Absolutely. And matter of fact, thank you for mentioning that. I wrote on the, I wrote on the subject, uh, recently a a few weeks ago uh, I guess maybe a month ago or so but yes uh, the Merida initiative also Project Colombia which goes back to the Clinton administration which has had disastrous implications for uh, the poor and working people in Colombia as well as Obama's uh, uh, programs in Central America which are giving money to the Junta in Honduras and in other uh, countries as well so all of these issues and in Mexico the Merida initiative absolutely so thank you for bringing that up Um, Laura Carlson, I wish we had some more time, but I want to thank you for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Again, uh, Laura is the director of the Americas Program at the Center for International Policy. Uh, her work is excellent. You should be following it. You can follow them on Twitter at CIP Americas and the website CIP Americas.org. Laura Carlson, thanks for coming on Counterpunch Radio.
2: Thank you, Eric.